truly at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 190 of Dogcast Radio. You can find this and all our other episodes, as well as our blog, articles and lots of photos at our website www.dogcastradio.com. Later on, I'll be talking to Sue Caulfield about the dog holidays she runs. We take over the whole farmhouse, it's a Tudor farmhouse, and people come along with their dogs and they get to try out lots of different dog activities from fly ball and agility through to um, obedience, we do rally obedience. But before that, I'm very excited to have an interview with Gregory Burns. When I read Gregory Burns' book, What It's Like to Be a Dog, I anticipated it giving me new insights into dogs, but I didn't expect it to make me question and think about who I am personally and who humans are as a species. So here's a warning. This book is going to make you think about things you didn't think you were going to think about. When I talked to Greg, I wanted to go back to the start. I love this because it has a personal start. I think this book actually has been coming for a long time, hasn't it? It's, a, it's many, many things, but... It's, it was kind of that meeting of many things at that point because you lost Newton, your pug, and you were in a position to find out the answers to the questions you had. And they're questions that, you know, many of us sort of look at our dog and think, do you love me? What's going on in your head? You know, it's that kind of thing. So take me back to the beginning. Where, how, where and how did the dog project start? Well, sure. So I guess to understand how the dog project came about, you know, we have to go back a little bit before that because this is not something that I I trained in my career for. This is kind of something later in life that that happened and just kind of serendipitously worked out. Hmm. So, so my situation is I am a neuroscientist and have spent 20 some years, I would say, training in various aspects of science and medicine to understand how the human brain works. And so I'm trained as a physician as well as a scientist. And for really my whole career, I had been using techniques like MRI to understand the human brain, specifically what motivates us, you know, what what drives our reward systems, how do we respond to punishment, uncertainty, risk, all these things that go into decision-making. And so it was kind of against that backdrop that um, a few events happened, and this was back around 2010. So the first you mentioned was that my favorite dog, who was a pug named Newton, passed away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is not something that's unexpected. He he made it almost to 15. Wow. So, you know, that's actually quite a long time for a dog like that. Yes, it is. Um, but, you know, but, but, and, and so that's the upside to that. But, you know, the downside, you know, when you lose a dog that has been with you that long, um, you know, as I like to say, there are, I have very few relationships in my life that are that long. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it sounds kind of coarse, but, you know, I think that's probably true of a lot of people. I oh, mean, yes. we have, you know, we have our family, um, you know, but but then as soon as you get outside the family, then, you know, how many people can you say are in your life for that, that long? And yeah, so, yeah. you know, so I think after he died, I had been thinking uh, kind of maybe subconsciously, you know, like what goes on in dogs' minds. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, really the catalyst was, strangely, the, the mission to kill bin Laden and I, I feel fairly comfortable in, in saying I'm probably the only person who had this reaction. <laughs> but when I saw all the media around that, and, I, and specifically I saw these pictures of military working dogs jumping out of helicopters and you know, doing all these really um, impressive feats, that was when the light bulb went off in my head. And, and it was, you know, if a dog can be trained to jump out of a helicopter, then we can train a dog to go into an MRI. Uh, the issue is because MRIs are quite loud and in yes. fact they sound kind of like helicopters. Mm. So, so that was the start of it. And then, of course, the natural question is, well, why would you want to do that? And, and the answer is, well, they can't talk to us. The dogs can't talk to us. So we have to look inside the workings of their brain to maybe figure out what they think. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, you, you'd worked with MRIs, so, you know, you that you had that... Um 
in your head. And, and, and actually then you, you built a sort of a practice MRI in your basement, didn't you? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, once this, this idea kind of hatched and then, then it becomes a matter of like, okay, well, this sounds like something might, might be possible. Then you have to figure out, well, how do you do it? And so, so what I did was I teamed up with a local dog trainer who I knew and, and he was up for the challenge. And we just kind of started working through the details of what is it about an MRI scanner that a dog would have to get used to. And so, you know, it's, it's a, big machine, it's loud, it's a tube you have to go into, mm-hmm. there's a patient table, you know, so the dog will be elevated, um, all these elements. And, you know, I should probably back up and say that, you know, when when we decided to do this, it was very clear in my mind and my dog training partner, Mark, his mind that we would do this in the most, most ethical way possible. In fact, we would go beyond what was legally required yeah. of us. Yeah, I love that. If, if you, I mean, I love that. And the three principles that, that, that was going to be a later question, but the three principles that guided the dog project, you know, that's, that's lovely. And I think all dog owners are going to warm to you for that, that you, you do, you do do no harm. You know, you, you do put them at the heart of what you're doing and their, their well-being, don't you? It, it, yeah. And I mean, it seems, in hindsight, obvious, I think, but, but when you're in academia and working in science, um, you have to realize these are not, this is not how science is normally done yeah, on animals. Yeah. So if you look at animal experimentation, uh, you know, it's off, basically it's terminal for the animals. The animals yeah. have no choice in it and then they die at the end. Mm. And that was not what we wanted to do. These, you know, we were going to treat the dogs, um, as volunteers. We were going to, essentially treat them the same as a human child volunteering for any kind of research. So specifically, that means we would not sedate these dogs, we were not going to anesthetize them, and we were not going to strap them down on the table. So we had to figure out the training process to basically get them to do this of their own volition and and hopefully enjoy the whole process. And so to do that, I built a simulator of an MRI in my basement and all the pieces that go into it that a dog would have to learn to get used to. And then it was really a matter of just trial and error and kind of working slowly through the process to get the dogs used to it and uh, by making it a game almost. We use lots of treats, but also just, you know, having fun around it. And then that, I think, is the key. Yeah, yeah. It's it, perfect. You're saying all the right things. Um, and... You used your own dog, didn't you, Callie, to sort of test that MRI out? That's right. So, you know, so I have a, a motto in my lab that, that we don't do experiments that we wouldn't be willing to do on ourselves or a loved one. And so, um, you know, I was kind of very intrigued with this possibility, but I couldn't very well ask a stranger to volunteer their dog to do this. And so I felt that... At least for the first dogs, I would have to work with one of my own dogs to to see if this was feasible and if it could be fun. And so, um, at the time, I had uh, two dogs: uh, Callie, who was an adopted terrier mix, and then another dog, Lyra, uh, who was a golden retriever. And so, neither dog was particularly well trained in obedience, but Callie seemed to have the curiosity and the drive, and, and seemed to enjoy this the most. So we went with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and did she take to it? She did. Uh, I mean, that's kind of one of her traits is that you know she's kind of fearless um, and curious, and so there were certain elements that you know she had some difficulty with. Um, you know, none of the dogs particularly like the noise, so that takes some getting used to. Um, we also have to get them used to wearing ear protection, the same as people do. Yeah. So. There's some, you know, there's uh, some hurdles. Um, some dogs, in hindsight, now kind of breeze through it, but most, I would say, take about two to four months to to learn how to do this. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's fascinating that you when you say you know the dogs had the choice they really genuinely had the choice. Um, you didn't even lift them and put them on the table. There were steps, and they could choose to go in or they could choose to say no, couldn't they? That's right. And there were, there's a couple of reasons for the steps. I mean, obviously it would have been easier for us just to put the dog on the patient table. But, um, 
we figured that you know most dogs don't really like to be picked up, so that's stressful in and of itself. And by by doing the pet steps, so they learn to walk up to the table and into the magnet by themselves. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, that shows them that they have control over the situation, so that they once they're in, they know that there's also an exit, even if they don't use it. Um, and it also is, it, it lets us know that the fact that they're in there that they want to be in there because, of course, they can always just back out and leave. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. And I love the fact that you, you gave them the earplugs, the little squidgy earplugs, like, as you say, as humans um, use. But if they didn't like that, there was still another choice. They could have earmuffs, couldn't they? That's right. In fact, we started with the earmuffs, and a, a few of the dogs still use it, but we prefer the earplugs because we think they're more effective. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we've, we've got the dog. We've, we've, you know, sort of talked about how we've got the dog into the MRI and that it's their choice so they can, they can back out at any point. Um, and then you had to train them to sort of keep still in the MRI. Um, but then after that, they, some, some of the dogs had done, um, quite a few months of training, sort of putting their chins into a chin rest and keeping still in the MRI while you presented pictures and, and signals and, and treats and things and looked at their brains but then you wanted to get them to react in the MRI and that that brought its own challenges didn't it and I love the description in the book of Zen um, her reaction and oh his reaction and Libby and her reaction they're very different dogs so can you tell us about Zen and Libby and sort of how they reacted to being asked to, to move in the MRI yeah so once, once we showed that that this this whole thing was possible with my dog and, and another dog, a border collie, what happened was then we started putting the word out uh, amongst dog owners in Atlanta, where we are, that hey, we're looking for dogs and people to volunteer for this project. Um, we, at that point, we didn't really know where it was going to go, but we knew that uh, we would need to expand. So, so we started kind of we created MRI training class. So. We started holding MRI class every other Sunday, Aww. and then people would come in with their dogs um, who were interested in this. Um, eventually, we started holding tryouts because we quickly realized that even though maybe some of the people thought their dogs might be good at this, they not all of them were. Mm. And so, so we developed a tryout process where we kind of tested some of the elements to see if the dogs, how they would react to it to make sure that they would have fun and likely succeed. So we soon found ourselves, you know, in the situation of, you know, having close to 20-some dogs who were in the process of training or completed the training. And then once you get into kind of that number of dogs, then what becomes interesting is not simply just how a dog reacts. You get into these individual differences and what makes one dog different from another. And that's that's really what a lot of the project is about now. So Zen, Zen is a dog. He's a, a cross between a golden retriever and a Labrador retriever. Uh, he came from a service dog training program called Canine Companions for Independence. Um, and he, he basically washed out of service dog training. Um, he was bred for it, but for whatever reason, he was too distractible or whatever. His handlers thought he couldn't be a service dog. So his puppy raiser adopted him. And then she volunteered with him to be in the in the dog project here. And so it's kind of odd that his name is Zen because um, puppies from these these programs are typically named. Um, each litter gets a letter, so all the dogs in that litter have the same have a name starting with that letter. So it's totally random that he was in a Z litter and that this puppy was named Zen. But it is a completely accurate description of his personality. He's a very chill dog, um, kind of nothing seems to phase him, and, and he could do the MRI with, you know, it's a breeze for him. He just goes in and it's like, whatever. Um, in contrast, we have other dogs, um, many of whom are rescues, like my dog Callie, and, you know, maybe they're mixed breeds, um, or maybe it's because, you know, they lived in shelters, but for whatever reason, they're much more reactive. Um, you know, they're kind of on a hair trigger. Some of them uh, react to dogs, some other dogs. Um, some of them react to strangers. So they're not, you know, they're not your perfect canine citizens, but they're very interesting and they're quite different from the Zens. And so 
part of the project now is figuring out, well, what's different in our brains that makes one dog like this or that? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and another dog that, who actually reminded me of, I think, what my dog, Buddy, my dog's a Labrador. And you, again, you taught Katie, you know, you, you, you sit there and you put your chin on the rest and you don't move. And, and she'd learnt that. But then when you needed her to press the target to sort of see this reaction in the MRI, she just, she wasn't ready to do that, was she, at all? Yeah, well, that's Katie, yeah. So I talk about Katie in, in a particular um, task that we, we developed much later. So so in that um, experiment, so maybe I should back up. When, when we started the project, um, we did very simple experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, so our, our very, the very first thing that we did was we once the dogs learned how to go in the MRI, we taught them two hand signals where one hand raised meant hold still, say for 10 seconds, and then you'll get a treat, like a hot dog. And then another hand signal, which was two hands up, meant basically nothing. It means you you just hold it up and then nothing happens, and that's Mm -hmm. a control signal. So by comparing the brain's response to these two signals, one of which signals a treat and the other one nothing, what that does is that lets us locate in the dog's brain the parts of the brain that are responding to the anticipation of something good, like food. And that was more of just a test that the technique works because we kind of already know where in a dog's brain that is. It's, it's the same as in a human brain or any other mammal. So after that, we went on to more complicated things. And one of the more complicated experiments that we did was a test of impulse control. And for this task, the dogs were trained outside the scanner. This is well after they already learned the MRI training. Mm-hmm. That um, when they heard a dog whistle, so the owner would blow a dog whistle while the dog's in their chin rest, and they would have to touch their nose to a target right in front of their face. And so they had to nose poke on when they heard the whistle. Then after they learned that, we introduced a new hand signal, in, which was arms crossed in an X shape, which meant don't poke the target even when you hear the whistle. Yeah. And so so this is like putting on the brakes and this is this is a task of impulse control. You know, and dogs dogs are not, shall we say, great masters of impulse control. <laughs> yes. You know, they can they can do it um under certain circumstances, but it it takes them effort. Uh you know, that's part of the beauty of being dogs. Uh, and so what we wanted to know is, well, what part of their brains are responsible for this? Because they don't have big prefrontal lobes like we do, which is the part in humans that does this sort of thing. So, so Katie was one of these dogs who she's kind of this, she's also a golden retriever lab mix. Um, but she's different than Zen, uh, in the sense that She's more timid, and so she was also a service dog that washed out of training, but she washed out because she was so shy mm-hmm. um, that when she got nervous, she would just kind of shut down and, and not do anything. So she has this kind of timid personality, and so one of the issues with her was she would go in the scanner, and she was already well taught to stay in the chin rest, but then when we asked her to poke the target, she wouldn't do it. Um, she, it took a long, lot of warming up for her to do this. Um, and so at the end of the day, when we finished this task on, on a bunch of dogs, what we found was that the dogs who did really well on this test of self-control were the ones who had the most prefrontal activity. It's like you could literally see these dogs putting on the brakes and the, and the dogs who had the most neural activity did the best on it. And those are also the dogs who also exhibited good self-control outside the scanner on, on a variety of other tasks as well. And so this gives us some insight into, well, what's going on inside the dog's mind? You know, how is it different from one dog to another? How might we even use that information to help train dogs? And so it, it really opens up kind of all sorts of possibilities. Yes. Yeah, it, it is. It's fascinating. And, and you know, I was thinking that as I was, as I was reading it, this is really going to open up to to trainers and owners to look at their dogs and, and use that information and sort of think, right, okay, I can, I can make my dog's life better like this. And also, which, which, one of the things that really interested me, when I, when I first was finding out about dogs, we, we'd got my Labrador I've got now and a little Bichon Frise. And there didn't seem to be a pack leader between them. You know, in, in those days, it was all pack leader. And, um, and they would sort of sort out between them. Right, my, my priority is food or my priority is people or whatever it was. And they would rule different little bits of life, you know, and they'd kind of go, Oh yeah, you're the, you're, you take precedence here, don't you? And 
in, in a slightly different way, uh, Libby sort of she she had very good self control in some ways over these the impulse um, control experiments, but then she was quite dog or is quite dog reactive, isn't she? That's right. And so, you know, a lot of these things that we're studying are very dependent on the context in which they're mm. experienced with dogs. And, then, and that's kind of a big takeaway. The downside of this is that, you know, our MRI is a very artificial environment. It's, it's, it's very foreign. You know, the dogs are very used to it now. So I think they're more natural in, in the sense that, that their natural personalities come through. But they don't really do much in the scanner because, you know, if, if they do anything, then they're moving and then we don't get any data. So it's a little bit artificial. And so we have to become very creative in, in the experiments and studies that we set up to try to simulate natural occurring things. One of the things that we've done lately, and this, this is kind of not quite fully baked yet, is we've begun to study jealousy in dogs. Hmm. And so... One of our more recent experiments is we we have our dog in the scanner and they're looking at their owner and sometimes the owner turns around and instead of uh, feeding the dog in the scanner, she puts the food in a bucket. And so the dog is, we think, kind of disappointed with that. But the more interesting condition is sometimes the owner will turn around and feed a very realistic looking statue of a dog. Mm. And so by comparing those two conditions, we can see how a dog is reacting to this, you know, this very kind of dog-like creature getting food when they're not. And it's, and because it's a dog and a, versus a bucket, we can isolate this kind of social element of jealousy. It's not just disappointment. I, we think that we're kind of getting closer to jealousy. And then that, that relates back to the dog's overall temperament. So you see dogs like Libby, you know, specific parts of their brain are just really going haywire when they see it, while other dogs like Zen don't care. Yeah. Another experiment you do with them or test that you do with them, the marshmallow test. And I love the fact that you, you sort of had to adapt this or, or change this. So can you tell me about the marshmallow test? Well, the marshmallow test is a, a famous uh, test of psychology, actually child psychology that was invented in the 60s. And then the human version of it, uh, a child, usually about age four or so, is is placed in a in a room, and they're told if you wait ten minutes or fifteen minutes, we'll come back and give you uh, a marshmallow or a cookie, whatever the kid likes. Mm. And so then the, the researcher leaves the room. If the child doesn't feel like waiting, they can ring a bell, and then the researcher will come back and give them something. But it's not going to be as good. So it's a test of the ability to delay gratification. And what's interesting about this is that when they did this test, and then they followed up on the kids many years later, what they found was that the kids who did really well on the marshmallow test by you know, waiting, delaying gratification, were kids who did better in all aspects of life in modern society. They had higher test scores, SAT scores, better grades, they earned more money everything. Mm. And so this is an important finding because it shows how important the ability to delay gratification is in our lives. So the test that I described with the dog whistle was our version of this for the dogs and kind of under the theory that, you know, dogs who exhibit good self-control fit into human society better. And dogs who, who do not, uh, unfortunately, frequently end up at the shelter. Um, so, again, the finding that, you know, dogs like Libby, you know, maybe have more problems with this than other dogs like Zen or Katie is kind of, again, speaking to this individual difference aspect of dogs. And, and now we're starting to get to the neurology of what makes one dog different than another. Yeah, yeah. And the, can you tell me as well about the, the A, not B test? Yeah, so the A not B test is kind of like the marshmallow test, although it's even it's even more primitive than that. Um, this was a test that was also invented to study child development. Uh, it was actually invented by Piaget, who's kind of the grandfather of, of developmental psychology. The A not B test is just stupidly simple. So the subject, whether it's a dog or a child or any other animal, has typically two containers in front of them. And then what they do is they, in the case of the dogs, they watch a human put a treat in one of these, these buckets. 
and then the dog's released, and all they have to do is go to the bucket that has the treat in it. So we do that three times. The dog learns it's always going to the same bucket. That's called bucket A. Then on the fourth time, the person puts the food in that bucket, and then while the dog is watching, they take it out of that bucket and then just move it to the other bucket. And so then you release the dog, and you see... Do they go to the new location or do they continue to go to the original location? That's why it's called A, not B. Uh, in order to pass the test, they have to go to the correct location, the new location. Now, this may seem trivial. It's like, well, why wouldn't you? Well, it turns out that you need a, a fairly reasonably functioning prefrontal lobe to do this because children younger than, say, about nine months can't do it. They'll continue reaching to the original location. And many of the dogs can't do it either. Um, or it takes them many, many tries to get it correct. And there's a huge range in how dogs do on this. And we think that it's tapping into, again, this ability to inhibit a particular impulse. In this case, it's the impulse to kind of keep doing what you were doing and change gears. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a different yet related skill that indicates prefrontal function. Yeah, yeah. And it's it seemed to come out that the dogs that were better at the self-control tests didn't do so well on the A, not B, and the, and vice versa, wasn't it? No, it, 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 was, it was the same. So the dogs who did better on self-control also did better oh, did, on yeah, A, not yeah. B. Yeah, mm. so again, what that shows, and, and these are all what we call prefrontal functions, so it shows that dogs, for whatever reason, genetic or... The, the way they were raised, just have better prefrontal lobe function, do better on all of these things. Now, this leads to a question which I don't know the answer to, but I, I've been thinking a lot about, is can we improve prefrontal lobe function by kind of uh, certain types of training, training that teaches self-control, and does that generalize to more than the specific circumstances? So, if, if we could figure that out, that would be of tremendous benefit to dogs because it's like kind of building up a muscle. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Now, one question that all do- dog owners ask, I think, is, you know, does my dog love me? We want to know that. Can you shed any light on that for us? It's a general question. And so um, <laughs> I, that's like asking me if I can tell you if your significant other loves you. (laughs) Uh, It it really is the same question. And so if you step back from it and and kind of view it that way and and kind of consider kind of human relationships, you realize, well, there's going to be kind of different degrees of love on both sides of the relationship. There's no guarantee that it's the same. And then, of course, there's the issue of, well, there's different types of love, and that word is very loaded and has many meanings to it. So, and and I've thought a lot about this with regards to dogs, because obviously we love dogs in a specific way. And then the question then is, well, what do they think of us? Is Is it all about the food for them? Do they just hang around us because we feed them? And, you know, a lot of people think that. Certainly a lot of scientists think that, and I think, you know, there's still a substantial proportion of, of people who live with dogs who think it's all about the food. Um, and it may even be that some dogs are like that and other dogs are not. So to answer this question, we designed an experiment, which is a variation of the original thing that we did. Uh, so in the original experiment, we taught hand signals and then the dog either got a food treat or not. In this experiment, we call it food versus praise. So it's essentially the same experiment, except we added a condition that um, on some of the trials, the dog was signaled that they would get a hot dog. And then on other trials, they were signaled that they, if they wait, then their owner would pop into view and just praise them and say, good girl, just like something like that. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a head-to-head comparison, really, of the value of food versus the value of a social reward, just the simple act of praising. And again, we focused on the same part of the brain uh, that's central to the reward system, and then we use that as a kind of meter or gauge of, of what the dog likes. And so we could calculate for each dog the relative value of food and praise. And what we found based on the brain activity is the majority of dogs had approximately equal responses to food and praise. 
some dogs even had a stronger response to the praise, and then there were two dogs who had a stronger response to food. So that's very reassuring because it means that the dogs are not solely motivated by food or that even that the food kind of outweighs the praise. Mm -hmm. Then we did a follow-up test outside the scanner where we gave the dogs a choice. So we constructed a giant maze in a room, and it was in the shape of a V, and so the dog is released at the point of the V, and then and they have to choose to go left or right. And on one side, we, the owner is sitting, and on the other side, there's a food bowl. So they get to make a choice. Do mm-hmm. I go to the owner go to the food? And we do this 20 times for each dog and tally up kind of how, how often they choose one over the other. And what we find is that there's a link between what they choose and what their brains told us when we scanned them. The dogs who had stronger responses to the anticipation of praise in the scanner were the dogs who went to their owners more often outside the scanner and vice versa. And dogs who had equal responses in the scanner tended to just kind of sample back and forth between their owner and the food. Mm-hmm. And so, so again, what we come down to is that, you know, there's a continuum of responses here in dogs. The, the dogs are not all the same. They have different likes and dislikes, and that I mean, it's reassuring that most of them certainly seem to like their owner just for the the praise and the contact as much as food, um, you know. But but there's variation there. Yeah, yeah, and of course that is directly applicable to to training because you know we always say you need to find out what motivates your dog. It could be treats, it could be play, it could be fuss, verbal praise, you know, whatever it is, or tug toy, you need to find out what motivates your dog and then supply that, don't you? That's right. And, you know, I think, you know, certainly, you know, the vast majority of dogs are not going to turn down food under (laughs) most circumstances. But that doesn't mean that that's the best way to train them. And uh, in fact, in many circumstances, if, if you don't have to use food and you, you can use something else to motivate them, that's even better because, you know, again, it's like, it's kind of like human relationships. It's, you know, nobody really wants to be in a relationship where it's so transactional and kind of, you know, whether you like the, the person is dependent so heavily on, you know, something they give you. Mm-hmm. Um, you want the dog relationship to be valuable for it, some, just itself, that you want the dog to enjoy being with you and working with you just because that's what they enjoy, if you can. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. What's what's the future for the dog project? And while you were talking about sort of proving whether they love or whether they hang around for food, cats flitted through my mind. We have three cats as well. Could, can you envisage ever doing that for cats as well? I always get asked about cats <laughs> and... Uh, uh, you know, I've I've yet to meet a cat that that I think would sit through the training and would actually sit through the MRI and enjoy it. Um, plus, they have smaller brains than dogs, so it makes a smaller target. To yes. Yeah. Um, things that we're we're doing now in the dog project. So, you know, since we started, you know, we've increased the number of dogs we've trained tremendously. So we've now trained over ninety dogs for MRI. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is that's really quite substantial, and it gives us the power to start answering questions about individual variability. Maybe someday we'll get into the breed question. That's hard because we have no control over which breeds volunteer for for this, and there's so many breeds. Um, so many of the questions we're focused on now are trying to understand how dogs essentially process human-type information. So um, one of the studies we did was we discovered that the dogs have particular parts of their brain dedicated to processing facial expressions. So this is, this is very interesting because that was not generally known outside of primates that, that other animals had something like that. Mm-hmm. We're, we're also interested in trying to decipher what they actually understand from human language. In some of our early studies, which which I talk about in the book, it, it seems very clear that although they understand some things from human speech, it, they are not processing at all the same way that we do. And I suppose this is not too surprising because it, their brains are much smaller than ours and, and they don't have the real estate for doing language. As far as we know, no other animal does. So they're doing something, but it's not the same as we do. So we're trying to figure that out. 
We're also trying to understand how they learn. So some of what we're doing now is actually teaching certain associations while they're in the scanner. So we're scanning them in real time while they learn something. Mm, that's again, that's it's mind blowing. That's that's really fascinating because to actually see that process going on, wow, that's uh, and I have to say, you know, there's the obviously there's the scientific aspect to this with the, you know the MRIs and the research and that, but the actual dog training is pretty advanced here. You know, the particularly the um, my daughter likened it to you know Simon says the sort of touch the target when I blow the whistle unless I'm crossing my hands. It's quite difficult training, isn't it? Yeah, that was probably the hardest one that we did, and I think we all, we almost had a mutiny of the the humans because it, it took most of the dogs about six months to do that one. Um, yeah, teaching teaching a dog not to do something is much more difficult than teaching them to do something. We all know. I think we all know that. It's a that's it's a difficult because we're all told in dog training don't say no because what does no mean? No doesn't mean sit down or lie down or go over there. No means nothing. It's a difficult concept. So to teach a dog not to do something, it is a difficult concept. Yeah, extremely. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, well, it's, it's, it's a fascinating book. I, I really do recommend reading this. Um, it's, and, and it covers, and like I say, it covers a lot more than dogs. There is a lot of um, dog, you know, it, Thing, things in there that will delight dog lovers and owners but there's a lot more than that and be prepared to question your place in the world and sort of your values it's fascinating where can people find out more about it online uh well let's see probably the, the place to start would be my website gregoryburns.com uh that's gregory b-e-r-n-s um, so there are links there to many of the projects that we're doing both in dogs as well as other animals um also links to any of our academic papers, scientific papers, and then for any people who actually are in the Atlanta area and want to volunteer, then contact us about volunteering. I wish I were near enough to volunteer because I'd love to know what's going on in Buddy's head. We have the link to Greg's website on the Dogcast Radio site. And I found What It's Like to Be a Dog, a thoroughly interesting and deeply thought-provoking book. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. Do you ever read a book and think, no, it shouldn't happen like that? Well, check out the latest innovation in romantic fiction, Macy's Choice, which puts you in charge of the plot as you make life-changing decisions on the main character's behalf. At the end of each chapter in Macy's Choice, there are always two options, and you choose what happens next. With over a million and a half words, that's over 5,000 pages, 256 chapters, and 128 different endings, Macy's Choice is an ebook you can reread again and again, making new choices each time to vary your experience to find love with each of the three heroes. To find out more, visit Macy'sChoice.com. That's M-A-C-I-E-S-C-H-O-I-C-E dot com or search for Macy's Choice on Amazon. Why own a dog? There's a danger, you know. You can't just own one, for the craving will grow. There's no doubt they're addictive, wherein lies the danger. While living with lots, you'll grow poorer and stranger. And now the Dogcast Radio News. We've been told for years that dogs are colourblind. But now, a team from the Department of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Bari in Italy have established that dogs are specifically red-green colourblind. This has applications for everyday life with a dog. For example, asking your dog to find a red ball among green grass is making life harder than necessary for them. But the researchers also point out that dog trainers might want to avoid wearing red if they're working with a dog in a grassy environment, as the dog might struggle to see their movements. Apparently, dogs in the wild are crepuscular, meaning they are active at dawn and dusk when colour vision is not important. As pets, who spend most of the daytime awake, however, it's not so convenient for them. You can make things easier for your dog by choosing blue toys, which will show up against grass better. If you'd like to read more, the research was published in the Royal Society journal Open Science. I like the word crepuscular. I think I might use it instead of swear words. Oh, crepuscular! Well, the next story is Blooming Crepuscular. 
A dog rescue in Florida, USA, has taken an unusual approach to finding its dog's homes. The Pet Alliance of Greater Orlando has taken to assessing newly arrived dogs and assigning them to one of the four Hogwarts houses. Well, almost the Hogwarts houses, because dogs can be put into Gryffindogs, Hufflefluff, Ravenclaw and Slobberin. Dogs who have exhibited bravery are allotted Gryffindogs, while those willing to work hard become Hufflefluffs. Puppies, or dogs still waiting to be assigned to a house, are housed in the Porgwarts area of the shelter. The shelter is hoping to focus potential adopters on a dog's character rather than their breed. This sounds like a great approach to us because dogs are all individuals, and relying too much on perceived breed stereotypes can lull you into a false sense of security or make you suspicious of dogs with no basis in fact. Let's hope other rescues adopt a similar approach. Yes, down with BSL. Well, the dog in our next story not only crossed breed boundaries, but species ones. In a zoo in Vladivostok, Russia, keepers were looking for a suitable foster family for a rare Amur leopard cub. They found one in golden retriever Tessa, who already had four pups of her own, but happily accepted the cub, feeding it alongside her biological offspring. The cub's diet was supplemented with formula milk and meat treats, and he is thriving. To provide the cub with suitable feline playmates, the foster family has also welcomed a young lioness and tigress of the same age as the leopard cub. The arrangement was necessary as the cub's mother had eaten her three previous cubs, and with the Amur leopard critically endangered, the zoo was not prepared to risk leaving another youngster with the mother leopard. As well as Tessa, a Central Asian shepherd dog has been brought in to provide some rough-and-tumble play for all three cubs. The unusual family will stay together for at least 18 months, and possibly more if they keep getting along together. Aw, oh, there's a Disney movie in that. There is, isn't there? Well, there might be a Disney movie in our next story, too. In Hertfordshire, UK, 72-year-old Lily Ilfield was horrified when her house filled up with black smoke one night in the small hours of the morning. Fearing her house was about to explode, Lily fled. Realising too late that her phone was still in the house, Lily was unable to call the fire brigade, but worse still was the realisation that her pets, two dogs and a parrot, were in her home. Sandy, a ten-year-old Pomeranian, followed his mistress, but when Lily called to him, he turned back into the house and did not come out again. Lily was distraught, and when a firefighter went to the house, he found both dogs in the kitchen. Brave Sandy had apparently gone back to look after Tina, a thirteen-year-old chihuahua, and neither dog would leave the house voluntarily. Fortunately, firefighters carried both dogs and the parrot out of the burning house to safety before they suffered from smoke inhalation. The fire was started by an electrical fault and Lily and her pets have found alternative accommodation while their home is being repaired and cleaned. Ah, oh, so Sandy went back in for Tina? Yes, apparently so. Lovely, isn't it? It is, and here's another lovely story. Well, it has a lovely resolution anyway, because it starts sadly with a burglary in Melbourne, Australia. Thieves broke into a family home, stealing jewellery and electrical goods. Worse still, they stole the family's eight-week-old Labrador, Sasha. The crime received publicity, with news travelling far and wide that four-year-old Maya was devastated by the loss of her puppy. Within days, Sasha was found in the family's garden, apparently having been returned by the burglars. Which is doubly lucky, because Sasha has a medical condition which needed treatment, which now, happily, she will get. Thank goodness the thieves gave her back. Do you think they had a change of heart after a visit from a ghost with a clanking chain? Like Scrooge. I hope they had an unpleasant visit from someone. What kind of scum steals a dog? OK, our last story will calm you down, I hope, because it features a very happy dog who gets a forever home. Oh, good. But there are some ups and downs before we get there, so hang on. Buster, the Staffordshire Bull Terrier, had been in the care of the Scottish SPCA for two years. Oh, no! This isn't a pantomime, you know. Just let me tell the story. Anyway, Buster was a very happy dog and always wagging his tail. So much so that he damaged it by wagging it too hard and had to have surgery to have it amputated. When does this story get to the happy bit? Now, because Buster has been adopted by a family who give him lots of fuss and let him lay on the sofa as much as he wants. He's also been on holiday and despite the lack of a tail, is still Scotland's happiest dog. The Scottish SPCA is asking people to celebrate how lovely Staffies are, and if you've adopted one from them, they're asking you to share a photo on social media with the hashtag StaffieEverAfter. What a great idea! Let's hope lots of Staffies find their forever homes in 2018. And talking of next year, that's it from the Dogcast Radio News for this year. 
Bye for now. You can trust your dog to guard your house, but never to guard your sandwich. It's always great to find a doggy activity on your doorstep. So when I met Sue Caulfield and we fell into conversation about her beautiful Labrador Newfoundland cross dog, I was intrigued to discover that she runs dog activity holidays in the beautiful Shropshire countryside. You'll hear from the birdsong and sheep bleats that it was in that idyllic setting that I asked her to tell me more about dog holidays. They take place at Henley Farmhouse on the Acton Scott Estate, mm. so it's an area of outstanding natural Lovely beauty. Place, yeah. We take over the whole farmhouse, it's a Tudor farmhouse, and we take over the farmhouse, mm. and people come along with their dogs, and they get to try out lots of different dog activities, from fly ball and agility through to um, obedience, we do rally obedience. Yeah. Um, we go for walks in the glorious Shropshire yeah, Hills. gorgeous. And we cater for them so they get home-cooked meals three times a day. So it's all um, like home from home, really. Yeah, the I dogs said. get to stay with them in the room. Yeah. Um, the only time they're not with them is at meal times when the dogs either go into the car or stay in the room. Yeah. And, yeah, people love it. We get people come back on every break. Love it. I bet they do, yeah. And it sounds like it's as good for the dogs <laughs> as it is for them. Well, yeah. that's it. It's must say, we, we must be doing something right if yeah. they keep coming back. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go back to some of those activities yeah. because now most people will know what agility is mm -hmm. because that's that you know your dog jumping over things through things on things and you're going yeah. around the course so that's going to be familiar to most people so let's unpack a few of the others fly ball what's that fly ball is when you get a series of jumps and there's a ball that comes out of a piece of equipment at the one end and the dog runs over all the jumps um, grabs the ball and then runs back to the owner at the other end complete with the ball in their mouth yeah that's the plan yes <laughs> i bet that's fun in practice particularly doesn't with always go to plan <laughs> yeah particularly with people and dogs that are new to it yes <laughs> yes oh. it's a bit like a dog relay team isn't it when it's done it is when yeah. it's done at the right level yeah yeah but it's an activity particularly for dogs that love balls it's a really good activity isn't it and it's yeah. a focus it's high energy activity mm. um but i think Probably the most important thing with them with the holidays is the dog socialisation aspect. Yeah, yeah. Because we get dogs from all walks of life. Some are well socialised, some are less so. Um, but it's a great opportunity for everybody to get together, like-minded doggy people, yeah. um, and their dogs to just let their hair down and have some fun with other dogs. Yeah, yeah. And it's lovely because whenever you get together with other dog owners particularly, mm. you know, it's a great time to exchange tips and advice and somebody will say, well, I've got a problem with this. Oh, I found this works with that, it, whether it's diet or behaviour or whatever. So yeah. it's a real a good support mechanism, isn't it? It is. What surprised me as well is that it's tended to become a bit of a friendship network. Mm. And that's something that I hadn't appreciated when I set it up because I thought I was setting it up for the dogs. Um, but what's happened is we get a lot of people that come on their own and they've made lots of, of really lifelong friends. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, yeah. which is, um, is good. Yeah, yeah. So some of the other activities, we've done agility and fly ball. Yeah. What else did you mention? Uh, we do some scent trail work. Yeah. So we start them off with, uh, it's basically using um, rewards to get them to sniff out certain things. So we do some scent trail work. Um, we do rally obedience, which yeah. is, it's obedience training, but it's using different... Um, instructions along the way yeah. so it's like a little course that the dog has to follow and has to do certain things so it's just making it a bit more interesting for dog and owner really yeah yeah and of course the scent work getting your dog's nose working mm. it's, it's really a good way to tire them out and, yeah. and, and you know they have brilliant sense of smell so mm. get that working isn't absolutely it? and the rallyo you can do that at any level can't you mm. I've, I've done <laughs> It's a rallyo, but you can as long as your dog can sit. Yeah, you know you can start at rallyo and then build up, and you can start mm. on lead, can't you? Yeah. So it's great get mm. get started with that because anything, I think that encourages dogs and owners to get out there, have fun, learn something, and and build that bond. Because mm. when you and your dog are working as a team, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's really yeah. good. 
Yeah. Um, the other thing we do is we have guest speakers in the evening. So mm. sometimes we have a veterinary nurse and she'll give um, tips on emergency pet first aid, what you yeah. should do if your dog swallows something or gets a stick stuck. Not that we encourage use of sticks no, at all. No. What to do if you find a dog that's been injured on the road, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then we've also in the past had a lady that's done um, a talk and a demonstration on the use of aromatics. Hmm. Um, and it might sound a bit new age and it might sound a little bit sort of unusual, but it really can work and it yeah. can work well. And she's demonstrated it on dogs that are having maybe behavioural problems oh. and how just these um, particular scents can help a dog overcome some of oh. the problems. Yeah. So. The, the courses themselves, do you run them all? You must be a Wonder Woman running around doing all this. No, sadly I don't. Yeah. <laughs> we use um, specific instructors. Uh, Lee Gibson, for example, he does the agility. He's fantastic. Oh, he's really? amazing, isn't he? I yeah. mean, people travel quite a long way for a session with Lee Gibson. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we use Carol Thornley. She's APDT. Yes. Association yeah. of Pets dog trainers mm. qualified instructor yeah, she's lovely isn't she Carol? yeah carol's great mm. um oh and one of our ladies does the rally obedience yeah um and then we pull in a behaviorist to do talks we sometimes get a talk from guide dogs mm. um so we pull in different guest speakers in the evening yeah so it's pretty full-on really yes it's a lot to <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I imagine it's great but it's a lot to take in. Isn't it? Yeah, my friend, um, she makes cakes and she does the catering. Hmm. So she does all home cooked meals, yeah. bakes cakes. And yeah. So, yeah. But what a great opportunity just to come out, focus on the dog. Mm. You don't have to you know, cook for yourself anything. That's a really good experience. Yeah, it is. Mm. And even the walks, you know, we sort of choose walks that go off, off the beaten track that aren't yeah. too difficult, they're not too strenuous, but um, they're all really beautiful walks. Yeah, yeah. And what sort of breeds come on the holidays? You know, what do I do, do I need to have a border collie for this? Absolutely not. Mm. Any dog can come and any dog type has come. We've oh. had everything from little papillons up to yeah. German shepherds. Oh, lovely. Um I suppose we get our fair share of labs. Yeah. And we do get our fair share of border collies. Um but we get all sorts. Yeah. And the people we get all sorts of people from all different walks of life. Mm. We do get predominantly ladies. Yeah. You do in the dog world, don't you? You do. Definitely more, more but I also do. wonder if it's a little bit of the nurturing thing. You know, we like to nurture them. We want to give something back to the dog. Yeah. But we do yeah. get we do get a few chaps as well. Mm. Yeah. That's brilliant. Now, I know next year is a special year for you, isn't it? So tell me about next year. Well, next year's our 10th anniversary. Mm. We'll have been going 10 years as of the spring 2018. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we're quite excited about yeah, that. Yeah. I never thought, you know, I just thought it was a bit of a hobby, which yeah. it still is really. It's not not exactly a money making um, venture, but I did think that it would probably just fizzle out after a couple of years. Mm. But I've got to say, it's the people that have come on it that have urged me to carry on because yeah. we used to hold them at the Long Mind Hotel. Yeah. And when they stopped allowing dogs into the hotel, we were forced mm. to go outside to find uh, another venue to hold them. And um, Acton Scott, the Henley Farmhouse there, has been brilliant. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a beautiful venue, but it's not so pristine. Yes. They wouldn't allow dogs. Yeah. So it's, it's worked really well. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So, yeah. So, what have you got lined up for next year? We've got the usual breaks, which run for either four nights or three nights over the weekend. Hmm. Um, they include the agility flyball, rally obedience, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then we've also, we're launching an extreme dog break, yeah. which is going to involve some open water swimming and some canny cross runs. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we're quite excited about that. Yeah. So if you're going, anybody going to, with a dog who's mm. making to make a, a new year's resolution to get fitter or challenge themselves or has a, you know, yeah. something, they want to do something new with their dog mm. and make memories. Now's your opportunity, isn't Absolutely. It? I mean, we'll be gentle with them. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the runs are actually over quite a flat, wooded area upon mm. Wenlock Edge. Mm. And the Canny Cross, that's the Canny Cross, sorry. Yeah. Um, the open water swimming's at Carding Mill Reservoir. Yeah, yeah. Um, where they allow you to go open water swimming. Mm. So we're going to have safety measures. We've got somebody that's got life-saving skills. Mm. We're going to have life jackets for the dogs. 
um, and we'll have somebody there in a canoe to help pull people out if they get a bit yeah. worried. We're going to set a few challenges there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Water swimming. But, um, yeah, I mean, dogs... A lot of dogs love the water and they'll yeah. really enjoy it. So it's an opportunity. You don't get a chance to swim with your dog very no. often, do you? No, no. And not often intentionally. No. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like it's an, an environment where you can be challenged if you want to be. Or if you're having a bit of trouble and you're thinking, oh, no, I've, I've been off more than I can yes. do. There's support there. We're really laid back. We don't push people. Yeah. If um, we get people that sometimes will say, oh, I've had a bit of a heavy day yesterday. Mm. This is on the usual breaks. So I'm going to give it a bit, the dog a bit of a rest tomorrow. Yeah. And yeah. they can just stay in front of the log fire in the farmhouse or mm. go for a little walk. The farmhouse is fully enclosed. So when the dogs are there, they can run around the garden together. Yeah. And there's a field next door, so they can go in the field. Yeah. I bet so, they have a wonderful time. They, they do. They do. Mm. And to me, that's the most joy I get, really, seeing them run off lead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, just, they just love it. Oh, lovely. And even if someone doesn't have a dog of their own, they can still come on one of your holidays, can't they? They can, because we run a borrow-a-dog scheme. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. So, tell me, how does that work? Well, um, it runs through a local charity rescue organisation called Animal Samaritans. I yeah. think they're called Dog Samaritans now, actually. They have changed the name to Dog Samaritans. Um, and they are based um, in South Shropshire. Yeah. And they've yeah. got dogs that they're looking to rehome. And so we came to an agreement with them that if they've got a dog of suitable temperament in at the time, we will liaise with them and take the dog out of that situation um, and give it a couple of days of absolute fun and freedom with a view to hopefully finding out some of the elements that, that dog's got in yeah. terms of aptitude that we can promote to find it a new home. Yeah, yeah, that's And it's worked really well. Yeah. Yeah. We had one dog that came, a dog called Moss. I still remember him really well. Yeah. And he was 10 years ago that he came. Mm. And he was a black and white, white border collie. And he was brilliant at fly ball. And yeah. I mean superb at fly ball. He just took to it like a duck to water. Oh. Um, so we did a little press release at the end um, and promoted his um, incredible fly ball skills. Yeah. And he found a new home. Oh, lovely. Yeah. yeah. And we've had another dog, in fact, through the Borrow a Dog Scheme. A dog called Max. See, I remember them all. I yeah, can't oh, <laughs> the dog names, yeah. <laughs> and he loved water. And oh. he was nuts about water. And he flew into the water from a great oh, height and he yeah. just loved it yeah and he had the time of his life oh brilliant. and we rehomed him as well yeah yeah the thing is if you can tell people a little story about the dog yeah. tell them a bit about them mm. suddenly it's not just another face in a rescue center it's this is a, a person i'll say person but this is a person that i want to get to know then you're absolutely yeah. right yeah, yeah. yeah. oh lovely. it worked really well yeah. So yes, so people can um borrow a dog from us. Sometimes if if they want a dog that's very stable um and they they don't want anything that's going to challenge them at all, then I'll let them borrow Herbie our um elderly yeah. border collie for the yeah. sessions and Herbie doesn't stay with them in the room. Yeah. So it's all a case of assessing really how adventurous the person is and how um open they are to a little bit of disruption because obviously if you take a dog out of the rescue situation into a home environment you don't know how he's going to react yeah. and we haven't had any bad experiences mm. with that mm. but you know i just warn people that yeah we're not going to know how he's going to behave yeah yeah. Um, dogs so are dogs at the end of the day absolutely. not little robots are no. they you know? and all the better for it absolutely yeah definitely, definitely. yes yeah, so it's worked really well yeah excellent well brilliant and the best of luck with next year your, your 10 year you. celebration and I hope the extreme breaks go really well yeah That's I excellent. do too if you're within travelling distance of Shropshire and you fancy challenging yourself in 2018 the website with all the details you need is BarkingMadWeekend.com or look for Barking Mad Dog Weekends on Facebook. If aliens saw us walking our dogs and picking up their poop, who would they think is in charge? Well, that's it for this time and this year. As we head into 2018, I'm amazed and overjoyed that this will be the 17th year that Buddy has been alive in, having reached the age of 15, and the second year Mischief will have known. 
Next year will have its challenges and its rewards, its ups and downs. I don't really make New Year's resolutions, but it's a good time to take stock and be thankful for what I have. I'm grateful for being able to share so much with you and to know that Dogcast Radio has touched some lives, human and canine. I love getting feedback, so I'd love to hear from you about how your 2017 has gone and what your hopes for 2018 are. Whatever you want from next year, stay safe, take care, and look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dogcast Radio. That's all one word, Dogcast Radio. By email, you can contact me on Julie at dogcastradio.com When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What did the snowman's dog win in crafts? Best in snow.